was my favorite book. It was my favorite book of the Bible, and I read it maybe once a week. I mean, you know, it's short, it's concise, it has all those good things that I like. It's very action-oriented, so, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily heady. You do things in James, or you don't pay attention to it. Um, and so I, I think it was actually very formative in my understanding of what it meant to be a faithful Christian, what it meant to be wise, uh, what it meant to use my mouth, <laughs> okay, what it, what it meant to, to do these things. And so hopefully today I'll be able to, to, to continue on and, and share a little bit of things that I've understood from reading James with you guys. And before we actually get into the passage, I wanted to start with some, some sayings of things that I think are true, that if you pushed me on it, these are things that I would hold uh, against sur- surmountable odds, right? Uh, that these are things that I hold to be true and help me understand the world. Um, and so as I read these, I want you to evalu- evaluate them yourself to see if you agree with them, if you disagree with them, and not only if you agree or disagree, but to what extent do you agree? You know, do you agree 100% or you're like, ah, I'm with you, you know, 60%? I think in percentages. Um, sorry. So here's saying number one. There is a God who is currently in charge of the world that is both good and just. This God has made a way for us to have a relationship with him and even join his family sharing in that dominion and familial love. Through his example and the life of his son, we have been taught a new way to live life and have been given a new standard and understanding of what goodness is and what success is. And if we are part of his family, then this is how we should fight to live like. He provides good things to those who love him, and all that I have is a gift from him. He has freed those who follow him from the fear of death, promising one day a resurrected body to all his followers. I don't know about you, but that, like, hearing truth, biblical truth, like, that pumps me up. Uh, You know, I was over there kind of dancing while worshiping, if you can call it that. Uh, My wife sometimes says it's more like stretching, which I'll I'll take, okay? Uh, But I, I just, I get excited when I hear about scriptural, biblical truth that reminds me of the hope that I have in Jesus, right? It's what gives me a source of life, and so... Hopefully, as I was reading, you were seeing whether or not you agreed or disagreed with some of them, whether or not they shaped how you saw the world. Um, So we're going to start in in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Uh, If you've been following the series either online or in the the service, we just finished a passage about taming the tongue uh, and ended it with, uh, you know, how it doesn't make sense for us to bless with our mouth and curse with the same mouth. Like that, those, those don't seem to, to make a whole lot of sense. And then he starts into this passage about wisdom. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty young. I'm 29. So it's odd for me to be talking about wisdom, right? You would expect an older, wiser person to be here talking about wisdom. So I'm going to refer to James and then give my two cents. Uh, but mainly listen to James, okay? So we're going to start... 
chapter 3, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one in front of you, um, and it's on page 1012, 1012. Um, So, it reads like this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, so this passage, he actually starts with a question, all right? So, who is wise and understanding among you? And it's a question that might people, like, mentally raise their hand. Does that make sense? So he's calling somebody out. Like, if you, do you think you're wise? If I, do you think you're wise? Uh, I, I like to, uh, to Zachai's scripture sometimes. So here's a Zachism, you know. He says, you know, who is wise and understanding among you? I say, Imagine if I walked in and I said, who here believes they have a strong understanding of the Gospels and Christianity? All right. Now, some of you might be like, I do. Some might bolt out of their chair and run up on stage welcoming the challenge. Others might raise their hand very gently. Others might sit there and be like, I'm not saying a word, okay, but I do. And others (laughs) might say, no, that's not me. I don't feel like I have a really good grasp of what the message of Christianity is, and certainly not to rise to a challenge. Now, if I ask that question, you might think that I would then ask, you know, what's your theory on on atonement, right? Or can you explain the divinity of Jesus? Or can you give me a Christian perspective on the death penalty? You know, I I might ask you what I would consider a more intellectual or understanding type question. But James takes it a different tact, and I think that you've seen this In previous sections of James, he says, If you are wise and understanding, by his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. He skips the intellectual. He skips challenging your understanding and goes right to what you're doing. Uh, And that, as we've seen before in James, is, is a concept that is important. It's important to him and it's the same concept we saw with works, uh, or excuse me, not works, with faith, all right? Faith without works is dead. He covered that in chapter 2. We say the same thing with our tongue. We don't have blessing and cursing from the same mouth. These things don't add up. If you consider yourself a wise person and you don't have good conduct with meekness, then you have missed the mark. Um, it's like... For him, belief and action are like conjoined twins. They share the same heartbeat. The life force of one is the same life force in the other. So it doesn't make sense to him for you to believe one thing and then act counter to that. But we know, and we do, that all the time. Like, people do that all the time. We do that all the time. Where we believe one thing is true, and yet we act counter to it. Uh, Simple example. We would probably all agree that like 15 minutes of quiet meditation a day would be healthy for us on a lot of different levels. But I imagine many of us don't do that. 
so we, we're not acting out that belief that our life would be better if we could set aside this time. And I'm not you know, trying to put anyone down. I know I don't meditate 15 minutes a day. Um, so I'm going to read a section of this again, okay, just to, to kind of communicate how it flows from the middle of chapter 3 into this new section. So I'm going to read again chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. And it says, does a, spring, oh, yeah, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So you see how they just kind of flow together, how he's comparing a person who claims to be wise and then looking at their actions. All right? Um, so Mike, if you've been to this church, uh, Mike, our pastor, has defined wisdom as skill in the art of living, which is a very poetic way to define a word. Um, not very helpful for us, you know, like box people where we put things in, in boxes, okay? So he says it's a skill in the art of living, but let's face it, right? There's lots of different ways that you could say, I have a skill in the art of living, right? Uh, if you look at America, I'm going to put America in quotations, you know, if you look at different cultures, they define success differently, Right? They might say uh, that it's beneficial to look after yourself. Uh, it, they might say it's beneficial to use your finances, finances wisely, which does not include giving to charity, right? Um, so then you have to ask yourself, where does your wisdom come from? Uh, does it come from your family? Does it come from your culture? Does it come from your God? Where is your source of what it means to live well? And this passage here kind of provides us a measuring stick to see whether or not our wisdom and what we say is a good way to live life is from God, if it's a heavenly wisdom. And he starts out with the negative. All right, so our first stick here is if your wisdom is producing bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your heart, then you have gone far afield of what heavenly wisdom is supposed to produce within you. He even goes so far to say as it's demonic. You know, if, if your way of living life produces selfish ambition or that you're jealous of other people, it's not coming from God. It's probably coming from somewhere else. And it kind of, like, that makes sense to me. In my opinion, if somebody had the mentality that life works better when you work for your own interests, I think that's a mentality that a demon would be okay with you know, uh, that, that he would promote just this, this self-absorbed, uh, self-interest way of thinking. Uh, and it's certainly counter-gospel, where you're sacrificing for others, or you're giving to the poor, uh, or you're living with kindness and gentleness and the fruits of the Spirit. Kind of uh, along the same lines, if someone, not necessarily say, but if they were to think, you know, people should be listening to what I have to say instead of dot, 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 instead of Zach. You know, he needs to get off the stage. Uh, no, so if, if, if somebody had that mentality, you can imagine that that's going to 
create disunity in a group. Uh, I don't know if you've been in the situation, I, I have, where you've been in a meeting or a, maybe a board meeting or something else where there's that one person who can't let their opinion go and they like, you know, they have found their box and they like, they will not let things move on until you agree with them when nobody's agreeing with them. And so rather than going with the group, they stick their cement or their, their feet in cement and just stand there unflinchingly. Um, some people are, are smiling out there just because I'm, I'm usually the one that's in opposition in the board meetings, you know, like everybody's like going this way and I'm like, well, what about this? And they're like, Zach, come on, man. But then I, I don't stick my feet in the, in the cement. I, I give way. Um, so like I, I've been there. Uh, but if you want unity amongst a group, you have to be willing to, to not force your opinion to be taken every single time if that makes sense. Um, and this is coming from that second portion. So he says that, like, but if you have bitter, je- or bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now that seems a little extreme to me you know i i know people that are selfish but that doesn't mean they do every vile practice okay or maybe they're jealous but that doesn't produce every vile practice um i think that the reason he said this was around 100 bc there was a book that circulated around that area that geography that he was at called the testaments i'm translating because i don't speak hebrew uh so it's called the testaments and in this book the Testaments, they actually say, they trace the source of slander, violence, and murder all back to jealousy. Now, I'm not saying that James is making a direct reference to this book, or even an indirect reference, but it's probably an example of a common understanding in the ancient world, that jealousy is something that produces multiple evil acts. And so when you have it, you have to be very, very guarded. Um, And I know I have experienced this, and there's probably many in this room who have experienced the destructive fruits that jealousy can create in your life. Maybe you were the jealous one. Maybe, you know, you knew someone that was jealous or, you know, you knew someone that had someone jealous of them. And just how it can very quickly at least destroy a relationship uh, at the very, very least. At the most can destroy a life, um, as it did in the Bible with uh, David. So I like to focus on the positive, not so much that what we shouldn't do, all right, don't be jealous, you know, don't be selfish, check, check, right? What should we be doing if we're not supposed to be jealous or selfish? Uh, what, that's not something that our wisdom should produce. So we then get a very compact list of what heavenly wisdom produces. So and this is in verse 17 and 18, but the wisdom from above, if first pure, then peaceable, Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So then I have to ask myself, does the way I think about life should be lived ensure my worldly success, or is it focused on servile obedience to God? 
Does the way that you think about and act on things produce conflict, or does it resolve tensions? Does the way you think about things tend to favor one group of people, or does it fairly assess all that you come in contact with? Is it merciful? That was the hard one for me. And I'm paraphrasing the passage, but this is what the wisdom from God is supposed to produce in his people, the ones that are supposed to be trying to live according to that wisdom. And wisdom is a very difficult thing to create in yourself. Uh, you know, it, any of those nice things that you're supposed to do are very difficult to create in yourself, but wisdom in particular is challenging, and there's not a whole lot of scripture about how to develop wisdom. There is a lot of scripture about what a wise person does or does not do, all right? So like in Psalms 110, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and so, you know, the, if you want to start being wise, look where God is and look where you are and recognize your place in the totem pole, right? That's where, that's where wisdom starts, okay? Um, with Proverbs, he says, you know, a, a wise person listens to advice or to their parents. Um, in Job, it says wisdom is among the aged, which is pretty true. Like, I, when I think of wisdom, I don't think of a, a young man. I, I think of an older man or an older woman. Uh, when I think of young people, I usually think of foolishness. Uh, and a, a wise person is one who pursues righteousness. Um, and for me, the way that I think about wisdom, at its core, it's about having an accurate perspective about the world. All right, um, so let, let me, I'm going I'm to give you some examples, but it's about having an accurate perspective about what the world is. Uh, as a quick example, you know, someone cuts you off, or, you know, at that point, you have lots of decisions to make, to run them off the road, you know, to slow down, to speed up, okay? Uh, there's all these decisions that you can make, but obviously a wise one is one that, that takes a step back and says, I am now going to be two seconds later than I was if they hadn't cut me off. I'll be okay. You know, like, that, that, just, that takes a step back and approaches it from an appropriate perspective. In Matthew 18, there's a, a great parable about forgiveness that Jesus says, and I'm going I'm to use this to try and, and show you why living based on a, a particular perspective can produce actually very good actions in a more natural way than if you're just trying to live based on rules, okay? So Matthew 18, this is the parable of forgiveness uh, that was specifically to answer the question from the disciples, how many times should I forgive someone, all right? Should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, you got to forgive them 70 times seven, and then he starts in with the story. And this is going to be Zach's version of the story, okay? So there's a king, okay, that was very wealthy, and he had lent out money to a bunch of people. And he had decided at that point, I'm going to start collecting, all right? I've given him enough time, I'm going to start collecting on these debts. So there's this one guy who owes him a lot of money, 10,000 talents. We'll name that guy Tommy, okay? So Tommy owes the king 10,000 talents of gold, and one talent of gold was worth 20 years of a day laborer's wages, okay? So if you paid someone $100 a day, that would be over $7 billion, billion, that Tommy owes to the king, okay? 
So he comes before the king, and the king's like, Tommy, where's my money? And Tommy says, I don't have it. And king's like, well, unfortunately, Tommy, I'm going to have to have you and your whole family work with me 12 hours a day until you can pay off your $7 billion debt. Okay? Which, of course, you're not going to have. It's not going to happen. You're, for the rest of your life, you're going to be working for me. It's going to be hard. And so Tommy, you know, he gets down on his knees, and he starts pleading. He says, please, king, I, give me some time. I'll pay you back. Please have pity on me. And the king does something incredible. Not only does he give him more time, but he actually forgives him the debt. Seven billion dollars. All right, and at that point, right, if you're, if you're Tommy in this story, okay, you're, you're weeping with joy. You're dancing around. If this were me, I would be dancing down the street, back to my house, okay, because I would be so excited to no longer have this burden of debt, right? So Tommy, dancing down the street, doing a jig, and then he comes across Bobby. Now, Bobby owes Tommy $100, and Tommy remembers it, and he says, Bobby, where's my money? Okay, and Bobby's like, Tommy, I don't have your money. I need more time. So Tommy throws Bobby to the ground, and he starts beating him, beating him up, like, you're going to give me my money. And Bobby's like, I don't have it. Please, show me some mercy. Show me some pity. I will get you your money. And Tommy says, no, I own you. You're mine now. And somebody sees this, tells the king, and the king pulls Tommy in. And he got, like, he's got to, like, what are you thinking? Like, he has to be absolutely dumbfounded by how petty, right, Tommy is being, right? I just forgave you a debt you could never pay me, ever. I would have owned you and your whole family for the rest of your life, and you can't forgive this one guy for $100? You're going to prison, and you're going to stay there and rot there for the rest of your life. So in the story, it's very clear how many times we're supposed to forgive people. But what is impactful for me is not only do we get our answer, but we also understand why we should. Does that make sense? That gives us a perspective that helps us to forgive others. If we look at ourselves and God and think, I have been forgiven for everything, that I've done, that I'm doing, and will do, it makes it a lot easier not to hold a grudge against someone when you're living with that perspective. And whenever you, at some point, if you were a Christian, you realize that. And then when you got forgiven, you got excited, right? There was some zeal. There was some passion, okay? And then over time, you either forgot how important it was, how great it was, or it just became normal. And you stopped living with that perspective. Does that make sense? You stopped living with that perspective. Let me give you another example. Uh, So let's say that, that you believe that God wants you to give something, to give money to a cause, and you you feel convicted about it, but it's not in the budget. We all have our budgets. It's not in the budget. So do you do it or do you not do it? Well, if you believe that everything you have is a gift from God and that he is a provider and loves his children and will provide for his children, then that belief should bring forth an action of following in obedience. 
Similarly, if someone punches you in the face, okay, Michelle and I are at the movie theater. Someone walks up, punches me in the face. This hasn't happened, but it might one day. Um, she, uh, she teaches Bible to, to juniors, and they always talk about nonviolence. And that's their like, go-to question. Like, what if somebody walks up and punches you in the face? Uh, and like, what would your husband do if someone punched you in the face? So she asks me, and I'm like, well, I'd probably make sure she was okay. You know, that's the first, that's the first step. I don't, you know, bow up. Come on, you know, uh, that's not me. Uh, okay, <laughs> never mind. Uh, all right, so, but if, you, if you're aware, if you're a Christian, you are probably aware that Jesus's way of salvation was one of nonviolence. He says, turn the other cheek. He says, when people do you harm, pray for them, and it'll be like hot coals on top of their head. If you have that belief that this is the better way to live, then it should produce that kind of action. And maybe a, a, like a more severe example, all right, and I, I recognize this, hopefully you won't ever have to deal with this, but if somebody comes to you and says, you denounce your faith or I'm going to kill you, then hopefully you have the belief that one day God is going to resurrect his followers. Death for you isn't the end and therefore shouldn't be like the primary motivator for what you believe. And I'm not, like, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I'll be honest. That, to me, is impossible. Uh, it would be extremely difficult, but I would hope that I would, I would stick to what I hold to be true because it shapes the way I see reality and then how I act accordingly. Uh, as most of y'all are aware, in... on. May 26th, my wife, Michelle, who was singing up here, she had heart surgery. Um, and so over the summer, she has been recovering and has had several restrictions, uh, sternotomy restrictions. So she can't, uh, she can't raise her arms, right? She's not supposed to lift anything that's more than like five pounds. She's not supposed to walk anywhere by herself because if she falls, like her sternum might separate. Like it, it, it was bad. And it was very difficult for her because she's, you know, she's independent. She likes being strong. You know, um, it's very difficult for her. And so after having these kinds of restrictions for a month, something happened. I, I don't remember what happened. Maybe she sneezed. Maybe a, a cat stepped on her. I don't know. Uh, but it hurt her physically. That's my point. So something happened, and she started to hurt physically, and she, like, she started crying she didn't stop crying. So I came and I was like, you know, what's, what's wrong, sweetie? And she's like, I feel like I'm always going to be this way. I feel like I'm always going to be weak, that I'm always going to be hurting, and I'm never going to heal. And I had the opportunity to sit down and say, it's not true. You are healing. I've, I've seen the progress. The surgery is going to make you more healthy than you were before it. It's just going to take time to recover. And it's, it's actually very short, just a, a few short months, and you'll be good as new. There's no reason to feel so de- down, and, and there's no reason to cry. You know, when, you're, when your spouse is crying, you know, usually you intervene. Um, but to me, it's an it's a excellent picture 
of how some people view the world, right? That it's broken, it's violent, and it's never going to heal. It's not going to be fixed. Um, and our hope as Christians says that one day it will be healed, that it is currently healing, right? And that we as Christ followers get to be a part of that healing process, even whenever we don't see it. It's a way to view how you're going to see the world. Is the world a broken place that's you know, about to experience the apocalypse? Right? Election's coming up. God help us all. Uh, you know, is, is that how you see the future? Or is it one of hope? Where the world is being healed and God is going to see it through and we get to be a part of it. Is this how you think about life? So again, uh, living as a, in Christian wisdom is one that attempts to live with the perspective of a successful life based on what we find in Scripture. And what we find in Scripture is oftentimes very different than what we see in, in culture. All right? Um, if you, like in American culture. And so in order to live according to the Scriptures, to live as if there is a good, just God who is going to take care of everything, takes intentionality. It's not going to happen naturally, uh, especially when, time, when trials come, and they do, they will. When times get tight, not only does it take some intentionality, but it also takes a high degree of faith. All right? a, a person who, who doesn't trust in this belief doesn't say, I can't afford this, but God's going to provide for me. It actually takes a lot of faith in these beliefs in order to live by them. Especially, you know, no sane person lays down their life for a belief that doesn't take hold of them, really grasp them to their core. And I, when I say faith, I want to be, I want to be clear. Um, I probably have a different understanding of, of faith than, than many do, uh, and even that what would be defined in the dictionary. I, I just... When I say faith, faith is the word that I use to describe the extent to which a person expectantly lives as if a belief were true. Now, I'm going to say that again because there were a lot of words. Uh, faith is the word that I use to describe the extent to which a person expectantly lives as if a belief were true. It's not a true-false uh, comparison it actually more closely aligns itself to measuring something. Does that make sense? So uh, I was talking about faith in junior high a few months ago, and I was trying to explain how, you know, faith is different from hope, is different from belief, right? That these, these words have different meanings. And I was saying, you know, you don't have faith in facts, all right? You don't have faith that this pen is blue because this pen is blue. There always has to be a little bit of uncertainty about whether it'll happen. Uh, and so, you know, I say, you, know, I, you don't have faith that this pen is blue. You don't have faith that gravity exists and is holding you down. And, of course, being junior hires, they had to challenge it. You know, they're like, well, I'm not sure that gravity is what's holding me down. It could be something else, and I'm just not aware of it. And uh, I said, well, that may be true. You may not 100% believe that gravity is holding you down, but... When you wake up in the morning, you're not surprised that you're not floating around in, in the air, okay? 
you live your life as if gravity is going to pull you down. That's why you don't jump off of tall buildings and then wonder why you're falling, okay? It impacts the way that you act. Does that make sense? So, like, you can believe with certainty, absolute certainty, that God exists and is good, but if you live your life like he doesn't, then your faith is very low. Uh, conversely, like, you might have serious doubts about this whole turn-the-other-cheek thing, okay? That that's the right way to go about these things. But if every time someone slaps you in the face, you turn the other cheek, you're showing a high degree of faith in something, even though you might doubt it a little bit and not be sure that's the right way to go. Uh, I will say, if you're getting slapped in the face a lot, you should probably take some time and figure out why? Um, <laughs> a wise Christian is a Christian full of faith, trusting that God's way is the right way. A wise Christian is a Christian that brings about peace rather than conflict with humility. A wise Christian is a Christian who works for the healing of our world even when we doubt it'll ever be complete. So I want to leave you today with two action items, right, some things that you can do. So one, I'd like you to reflect on your own wisdom. Think about what you think the right way to live is. And then think about whether your actions line up with that. If they would testify to your beliefs. Think about where it might come from. Did you get it from your family? Did you get it from, from God? Where, is your, where are you getting your right way to live? Um, where did you come up with that idea? And then the second thing is to write down a list of things that you hold to be true, that shape the way you think about the world. Write them down and then put them somewhere where you'll see it. So that in the morning you can look at it and say, oh yeah, God is real. And he takes care of his, his own. You know, whatever it, whatever it is that you hold true, we want to make sure that we are acting based on our belief because they share the same heartbeat. They share the same life force. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for giving us the courage and the thought to pursue.